hello and welcome to this United States Studies Centre webinar, What Does It Kennedy in Canberra Mean for Australia? As a daughter of a cherished US president, scion of a political dynasty, globally renowned philanthropist and accomplished former ambassador to Japan, Australia has arguably never had a higher profile US ambassador than it soon will with Caroline Kennedy. What is the history of the relationship between President Biden and Caroline Kennedy? What can we expect of her approach to contentious issues like US trade and climate change? How will her approach to China and the Indo-Pacific region compare with when she was ambassador to Japan? I'm Victoria Cooper in place for Myron Kirk, Director of Communications and Stakeholder Engagement. I'm a research associate at the centre and while we miss Mari this morning, we are joined by three expert panellists, exceptionally well-placed to discuss this topic. But before we begin uh, to answering some of those questions, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney stands on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. The ties of friendship and camaraderie between the United States and Australia run deep and predated our formal military alliance. But in recent times, we've seen a change in the trajectory of the relationship, with Australia playing an increasingly frontline role in the alliance's shared objectives in the Indo-Pacific. This in turn has been met with increased strategic investment from the United States from last year's AUKUS announcement to the Biden administration's prioritization of the Quad. But perhaps the indicator Australians are most likely to talk about is the highly anticipated arrival of Ambassador Caroline Kennedy. As I alluded earlier, today we are fortunate to have three guests from the United States Study Centre with unique insights into the impact and importance of this appointment. Firstly, we will hear from incoming CEO of the centre, Dr. Michael Green. He's the recent Senior Vice President for Asia at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in DC, who knows Ambassador Kennedy personally from her time as Ambassador to Japan. He is joined by non-resident senior fellow Stephen Loosley, who served in the Australian par Parliament in the Hawke and Keating eras and brings an in-depth historical perspective to the appointment of Ambassador Kennedy. And finally, non-resident senior fellow Bruce Wolfe rounds out our panel today. Bruce worked with Democrats in Congress in the Obama era and served as Chief of Staff for former Prime Minister Julia Gillard and has an important understanding of Ambassador Ken Kennedy's significance in the Democratic Party. So let's let's turn to this panel. Um, we'll begin with you, Mike, seeing as uh, you can only make the beginning parts of this uh, webinar. So some opening remarks from you. Uh, you have a personal relationship with Ambassador Kennedy. Could you please share with us your thoughts on the significance of her appointment to Australia and to the Alliance? Certainly. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And I'll issue or offer a few opening thoughts and look forward to Bruce and Stephen's deeper historical and political and foreign policy analysis of um, what will be on the plate for Ambassador Kennedy when she starts her uh, assignment in Canberra. Um, the United States is a proud republic, but the closest thing we have to royalty is probably the Kennedy family. And for my part, I had the pleasure of getting to know Ambassador Caroline Kennedy when she served as the US ambassador to Japan. And my first impressions will I think also be Australia's, overwhelmingly positive, and let me explain. Uh, I grew up in a very political family in Washington, D.C., a very divided political family. My father, as a young attorney, campaigned for John F. Kennedy in 1960, before I was born. Uh, my mom campaigned for Richard Nixon. Uh, her family was Republican going back to Abraham Lincoln. And the family lore is that both parents agreed 
that whoever won, Nixon or Kennedy, um, both of them as a couple would go to listen to the inauguration. And of course, Kennedy won. But if you know the history, that January, uh, when JFK gave his inauguration, was one of the coldest days in Washington's history. It was minus seven degrees Celsius. And after my parents listened to the president's mercifully short uh, 1,366 word inaugural address, uh, short but considered by historians to be one of the best ever given by a president with that iconic line, ask not what your country can do, but what you can do for your country. After listening to the speech, my parents beat a hasty retreat to the bar at the Jefferson Hotel, which happens to be next to CSIS and one of my favorite haunts. And in the bar there, they bumped into other refugees from the inauguration, including uh, President Kennedy's uh, advisor, the Harvard historian, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And they reportedly, or so they told me, all talked about the speech. And my Republican mom uh, acknowledged that it was one of the best presidential speeches she had ever heard, although she quickly added she wasn't around for Abraham Lincoln, a Republican who probably gave the greatest inaugural speech in history. Um, my dad then went on to work for the Kennedys. He was a personal aide to Robert F. Kennedy, who was the um, uh, attorney general at the Justice Department. And one of my earliest memories as a child was seeing my father cry uh, in the uh, bedroom with the TV on in the background announcing the news that Robert F. Kennedy had been assassinated in California. So the, the Kennedy family is incredibly emotional and powerful for my family, even for the Republican half of my family. And when Caroline Kennedy asked to meet me in 2013, after she'd been nominated to be ambassador to Japan, because I was trained and most of my writing has been on Japan, uh, I went into the meeting with a certain amount of awe uh, at my own exposure to the famed Camelot. But instead of royalty, I met one of the most down-to-earth, modest, intellectually curious public figures I've ever met, and I've met quite a few. And I think this quality is going to serve Ambassador Kennedy extremely well uh, in Australia. Um, Ambassador Kennedy had traveled around Japan uh, after getting married, and she had a soft spot for the country, but she came to the job in 2013 without any real experience working on some of the rather mundane and uh, often very political aspects of alliance management between the US and Japan. By the time she arrived in Tokyo in 2013, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo was hitting his stride. Uh, negotiating, negotiations between Washington and Tokyo were intensifying over Japan's entry into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. China was beginning to construct military facilities in the South China Sea, and Japan was responding to China's coercion by uh, initiating uh, major legislation in the Diet that would revise the interpretation of the Peace Clause, Article 9 of Japan's constitution, to allow collective self-defense, collective military planning, not only with the United States, but also Australia and other like-minded countries. So in a sense, Ambassador Kennedy's job in Tokyo was not to sell the alliance, which already had pretty strong bipartisan support. Her main job was to make the alliance function in a perilous time on trade, on technology, and especially on defense policy. And she established very quickly, very close working relationships with the top Japanese political figures she needed to get the job done, and the job was done. TPP was successfully negotiated. Japan passed its sweeping defense reforms and reinterpretation of the constitution and the United States and Japan signed new defense guidelines promulgating that. The Japan-Australia relationship moved in stride. And I think this experience is gonna stand uh, Ambassador Kennedy in very good stead in Canberra. Uh, I work very closely with Tom Schieffer who went from being ambassador in Australia 
to Ambassador in Japan. And I've told Ambassador Kennedy she's done a sort of a reverse Schieffer. Uh, but she brings enormous experience uh, managing a very large, very complex alliance. Of course, she'll need to represent the United States. Of course, she'll need to promote the alliance. But my view is, uh, as with her Japan posting, the major work will be to advance major strategic initiatives. Uh, initiatives we'll hear, I'm sure, about from the panel today, including AUKUS, countering malign influence in the Pacific Islands, and turning the new Indo-Pacific economic framework tabled by President Biden into something really more substantial, substantive uh, and uh, impactful in terms of economic statecraft. So uh, I know everyone at the US Studies Center is excited. I suspect all our counterparts at other institutions are excited about the arrival of Caroline Kennedy. I know we'll do everything we can to provide not only a platform, but independent uh, research and analysis to assist with her, with her work. Um, and it is a wonderful opportunity for Australia. It's a wonderful opportunity for me personally. And I very much look forward to hearing Stephen and Bruce providing a, a richer uh, and more detailed description of the history of the Kennedys, the history of, uh, of this alliance, and particularly what's on the agenda for Caroline Kennedy in Canberra. Thank you, Victoria. Over to you. Thank you, and thanks for your remarks, Mike. Um, yeah, I think you're right in the sense that we're capturing a bit of excitement here, not only excitement for Ambassador Kennedy's arrival, but also for this discussion and for determining some of those strategic imperatives that the ambassador will be faced with while she's here. Um, and I picked up in your remarks, Mike, you talked about this idea of Camelot. And I know, Stephen, that's something that uh, was made the headline of your op-ed in The Australian last year. So maybe you could pick up that discussion a bit. Can you explain to us, you know, what is this Camelot myth that surrounds JFK? And does the analogy still apply? Uh, and what's Caroline's role in that um, analogy? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story how the Camelot myth was uh, created by uh, Jack Kennedy's uh, a widow, Jackie, in a, a long interview uh, with uh, Teddy White from Life magazine. Teddy White, of course, was the, the great author of the making of the, the president uh, every four years for a, a generation. And, of course, uh, uh, Mrs. Kennedy told White in this interview that the, the late president had liked to play the soundtrack of the musical Camelot as he relaxed after a, what would normally be a quite uh, a gruelling day. Now, the editors of uh, Life in uh, New York were not as impressed by this uh, revelation as, uh, as Teddy White happened to be, but they held the presses. It cost them the enormous sum of $30,000 an hour in uh, 1963 money. But uh, Mrs. Kennedy prevailed and uh, Teddy White had his extraordinary story of Camelot, which was picked up everywhere in the United States and globally. And the ambassador-designate uh, is the link to the Camelot uh, myth of the, the Kennedy uh, administration. And uh, this uh, travels with her, and I suspect the qualities uh, uh, that uh, she undoubtedly uh, brings, given her experience in Japan and, uh, and elsewhere, have a certain glow as well, given the, uh, the myth and the enormous interest that it generates. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's, um, again, exciting. It's exciting to have um, a Kennedy, you know, we often refer to her as Democrat royalty, as well as that kind of Camelot analogy. And um, speaking of 
Democrat royalty. I know, Bruce, that you follow the Democrat Party particularly closely, and you've been following this nomination since the first whispers um, in Washington. So why did she get so much buzz? Like, what's beneath the surface here? Why is it that she's a Democratic powerhouse? Thank you so much, Victoria, Mike, uh, Stephen. Um, Mike, I grew up in Washington, D.C., too, and I went to Kennedy's inauguration as well. And it was a bitterly cold day. It had snowed two feet the day before, but a, a, a blue sky with bright sunshine that Robert Frost could not see the text of the poem that he read at the inauguration. And afterwards, we were at the parade, and I remember the open car with the president and Mrs. Kennedy driving past on their way to the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. So it's, it's quite something. Um, the, uh, I, th I think the touchstones for her ambassadorship were really laid out in her testimony in the Senate. I'll get to some politics a little bit later, but it, it, she really, and she invoked at the beginning of her testimony that, um, that her father, JFK, was rescued in part by Solomon Islanders uh, as part of the PT-109 legend. And to invoke that at this time, I thought was a you know, rather cunning sense of uh, history and uh, diplomacy. Uh, to, as she begins her uh, service here. Uh, she said it in, at Ambassador to Japan, she was, uh, as Mike outlined, she was heavily exposed, of course, to the Indo-Pacific issues. Um, her cause in her professional life has been public service and political courage. Her father authored Profiles in Courage, and there is a Profiles in Courage award that is given out every annually by the Kennedy Library, and, and to this year, for example, the people honored were Volodymyr Zelensky, Liz Cheney, and um, three election officials uh, throughout the United States in Georgia and Arizona. And she, uh, she did it to show how important it is to protect democracy uh, in these times. Um, she, uh, and, and she said that American values are more essential than ever. So she will be a champion for those in Canberra and in Australia. Um, she expressed strong support for AUKUS and the Quad and stressed the need for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, vaccines, things of soft power and other programs that will help the welfare of uh, people throughout this region. Um, uh, in, in the hearing, she said we can, that, that the United States can learn a lot from how Australia has um, asserted itself uh, with China in a time of great challenge. And I thought that was really uh, significant. She said, um, it is best always for the United States and Australia to work together in uh, engaging with China and competing with China and figuring out what the order in the Indo-Pacific is going to be. And um, that the Australian uh, people uh, understood uh, the Chinese challenge very acutely and that that was really good. So we have someone, as Mike said, who, uh, came in not as a diplomatic professional in any respect in that regard, but really understood uh, Japan and was so effective. And she, um, and that's a more complex political society than Australia, even though we feel that things are pretty complex here from time to time. And so she brings all those skills. For her service, she was honored uh, by uh, the award of the uh, Order of the Rising Sun, which is uh, very rarely given to uh, foreigners by the Japanese government and uh, Julia Gillard, for example, also received that, uh, uh, that award for her service as prime minister. So we have someone who is, um, has all the qualities that Mike outlined and she brings an enormous presence. And as Stephen uh, outlined as well, uh, there is this star wattage power. I was trying to think of others who might be uh, an equal in that department. And it would be, you know, if a Hillary Clinton 
wanted to accept an ambassadorship or Michelle Obama or maybe Meryl Streep, we'd be in the same league. But I think uh, with uh, Ambassador Kennedy, we will have someone of great ability, great insight, great commitment, and uh, someone who will instantly be able to engage with the Australian people. I'm just thinking Meryl Streep for ambassador could be a bit of a thing. Um, you know, I mean, and you've done a great job to outline that kind of element of public service that she brings and some of the credentials that she accumulated in her time as ambassador to Japan. Um, and Stephen, I might turn to you. I mean, it's no secret in Washington that Australia is a comfortable and desirable ambassadorial posting. Um, it's a, a, a position that's offered to friends and allies. I know President George W. Bush appointed his former Yale roommate, Robert McCallum, in 2006. Um, so why Kennedy for Biden? What's the connection between the Biden administration and Caroline Kennedy? Well, let's look back uh, to um, earlier times uh, to answer that, uh, uh, Victoria. It was uh, Prime Minister Menzies who told President Johnson that there was only one qualification for a United States ambassador to Australia. And that was to be able to pick up the phone and speak directly to the president. Now, LBJ certainly took that to heart in appointing Ed Clark, who had been his closest confidant in Texas politics for a very long time, including, frankly, having been his bag man during campaigns. And there was no doubt that Ed Clark could talk to LBJ, and, and so it's been with uh, a number of other American ambassadors in uh, in Canberra. I'm uh, I'm thinking of Tom Schieffer, for example. I'm thinking of uh, the Semler's uh, uh, plural. The circumstances of, uh, uh, of Carolyn Kennedy's appointment put us back in uh, in that league, because there's uh, something that's particularly important that's not often remarked upon and Bruce would be only too well aware of this, that uh, uh, Carolyn Kennedy's political judgment inside the Democratic Party is at least as good as her father's and her uncle's because she uh, backed Barack Obama early on when it was fashionable to back uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. She backed Joe Biden well before the South Carolina uh, uh, primary she has acute political judgment about US politics. So that judgment serves her well in an ambassadorial role, as we've seen in Tokyo, and I suspect will serve her particularly well in, uh, in Canberra. Now, that means that in terms of uh, American audiences, we'll have just that little bit more space on the screen in Washington, DC, because of the challenges that Bruce mentioned uh, earlier. Yes, Canberra is a, a much sought after posting, no question about that. But times have changed when you have the Chinese foreign minister in the South Pacific failing apparently to negotiate security arrangements with our Pacific Island uh, nations, when you have the creation of AUKUS, when you have the, uh, the generation of real momentum in the quad, and uh, frankly, a revitalization of ANZUS. All these issues mean that Australia needs to be on the screen in Washington, D.C. more frequently and in greater depth. And it means that uh, American views need to be registered with great clarity and regularity in Canberra. And I think the new ambassador fulfills those roles admirably. 
Um, I'd like to add for, I just want to add to what Stephen said, because uh, the, the, it was a defining moment in 2007, 2008, when she endorsed Barack Obama, because I think the expectation was that Hillary Clinton was the presumptive favorite and that the party, that, that, that there would be, and there, was, there would be strong ties there and the first woman president and so forth. But she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. I'd like to read a little bit from it because it really did change the landscape and made Obama's presidency possible. She said, um, she wrote, uh, over the years, I've been deeply moved by the people who've told me they wish they could feel inspired and hopeful about America the way people did when my father was president. This sense is even more profound today. That's why I am supporting a presidential candidate in the Democratic primaries, Barack Obama. Sometimes it takes a while to recognize that someone has a special ability to get us to believe in ourselves, to tie that belief to our highest ideals and imagine that together we can do great things. In those rare moments, when such a person comes along, we need to put aside our plans and reach for what we know is possible. We have that kind of opportunity with Senator Obama. It isn't that the other candidates are not experienced or knowledgeable, but this year that may not be enough. We need a change in the leadership of this country just as we did in 1960. That was an earthquake. And uh, it really, there's some, uh, cal there was a columnist here who said that uh, Oprah Winfrey was responsible for Barack Obama winning the Democratic nomination. Believe me, it was John, it was, it was, it was her endorsement and Ted Kennedy of course came out, it was a family decision. Ted Kennedy of course came out the next day. And that was terrific. As far as her relationship with Biden, I just noticed when the, you know there were rumors that she would be uh, nominated and before she was, whenever, so Biden as president, whenever she was at an event that he was uh, presiding over, um, he would always say, ah, there's my good friend, Ambassador Kennedy. And so it is, and so she absolutely has what Stephen said uh, is essential going back to early days. She can pick up the phone anytime and talk to Joe Biden. And that, that, uh, and that will be necessary at some moments. But she has all the assets that you want in a great ambassador. And so she brings that, which she, all the learnings from Japan, all the history, the ties to the party, the ties to the president, and understanding the strategic situation. So yeah, there's politics, but there's a lot, it's going to be applied to higher purpose. Of course. And thank you for reading that op-ed as well. I know that that was something that I had read as well leading up to this webinar. Um, and she does, she has this amazing ability to influence, um, I guess, yeah, the discussion and like the sway on how people perceive those candidates. And it is that she refers to them like my father. It's that kind of, you know, amazing extra push people get um, by her. And she even referred to Biden as a man like her father. You know, she has this ability to draw on those comparisons and, um, yeah, create a bit more, um, I guess, star power around those candidates. Um, but, I mean, let's turn to some of the politics now. I mean, before the webinar started, we were saying, you know, Ambassador Kennedy's got her work cut out for her. This is a really important time uh, in the Indo-Pacific and a really important time for the alliance. So I, I, I wonder, Stephen, uh, what elements of her role as ambassador to Japan, um, you know, what, what are they, what elements of that role are most relevant to her new role going forward? Uh, well, Victoria, as people are aware, the US-Japan Security Treaty is one of the most important alliance relationships in the world. It offers stability in a very difficult part of the world in terms of, uh, in terms of North Asia. And given the uh, American role with Japan, which has to address relations with Russia, the disputed islands, with the Zenkaku Dayu uh, islands, 
the disputed islands with China and a range of uh, issues. That experience is really invaluable in terms of Canberra and the new alliance relationships which are emerging. Primarily the Quad in terms of the Indo-Pacific, close uh, uh, a political, diplomatic and uh, uh, security cooperation with the US, Japan and, uh, and India, but also with the emerging AUKUS uh, framework, which is uh, focused primarily in terms of the public commentary on Australian uh, submarines, nuclear propulsion for Australian submarines for the future, but actually has enormous impact in terms of technologies, uh, particularly with artificial intelligence. The experience of the ambassador in Japan in those fields is again important, but the revitalization of ANZUS, I think, is not to be ignored. Now here, and I'm being absolutely frank, the Pacific War really is a touchstone of reference. Uh, and a number of American presidents, as we're aware, right through to George H.W. Bush from, uh, from Jack Kennedy, served in the Pacific War and saw the relationship with Australia emerge after John Curtin's appeal to Franklin Roosevelt in late 1941 and the signing of the ANZUS Treaty a decade later by the Menzies government, which, which makes ANZUS bipartisan, very important in Australian terms, and I think in large measure in American terms as well. So I think the fact that the ambassador has the name Kennedy, has her father's heroic role in the Pacific War as a touchstone of reference to, to which she's prepared to refer, I think that works for us in terms of the revitalization of, of ANZUS, a closer relationship in terms of military uh, cooperation, in terms of military procurement, and in terms of, uh, in terms of national security readiness, readiness in the South Pacific for the first time in a very long time. It, it's fascinating, uh, Victoria, what uh, some of the authoritarian uh, countries do in, in terms of persuading the West, the democracies immediately, that there's a threat that cannot be ignored. So the uh, Chinese uh, relationship with the Solomon Islands government extending into security convinced some people in the, uh, in the AUKUS uh, gathering in Washington, D.C., that there was something akin to the refighting of the Battle of Guadalcanal. I mean, that was the reaction. And that's not going to dissipate for the future, despite recent uh, Chinese stumbling about the, uh, the islands. That's going to be important to keep it on the screen in Washington, on the screen in Canberra, and cooperation uh, being de deepened, particularly uh, within the ANZUS framework. Uh, Bruce, did you want to pick up on that question as well? Yes, I, I think there's a, an overarching issue which uh, applies to the to Biden engaging with the world uh, throughout his presidency, and it will be enduring. Then there, I think there are a couple of issues here that will have special resonance for for her and with her, and 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 her the scope of activities. Um, autocracy versus democracy, that is a defining issue of these times as far as this president is concerned, and certainly in everything that is going from Europe to Asia. And, uh, and, and so that will be uh, a, a constant enduring theme. But a subtext to it is, 
And, and, and again, going back to the Profile and Courage Awards that she gave out this year on America, uh, those who championed uh, voting in America and making sure the process worked correctly. Um, will America, I mean, there is an, an open question, will America's democracy survive? And President Biden talks, he goes and sees his Europe, to his allies in Europe and, they, and they, he says, I'm back. And they say, we're delighted that you're back. How long are you gonna be back for? And, uh, and he is, it's not something that um, is to be hidden. It's something that Biden acknowledges as a major issue in the body politic in democracies throughout the world who believe in the United States, want the United States to succeed and look for our staying power as a, a country and world leader. So that's going to be really important. And then here, just in the wake of the election, I also think when she comes here and she sees Australian democracy in action, she's gonna be really impressed <laughs> with uh, the voting system. I mean, that you can have elections that could, the count goes on for days, it comes down to a couple hundred votes and guess what, no one goes to court. I mean, that's really pretty good. No one tries to remove election officials. No one calls up someone and says, hey, can you find me 150 votes in, uh, in, in uh, McNamara? And, and to see what the outcome is going to be. And that's really good. Um, but there are What's two- What's even better, Bruce, is that we don't have a militia trying to storm Parliament House. Well, I think uh, she, I, that, that oh, yes, although there have been a couple of disruptive demonstrations at the doors of Parliament House. Um, but uh, I think uh, what Australia has done on gun control, everyone in America is aware of it. And I think seeing it up close will be, incredibly important. Uh, but there are two other issues. Uh, there's, given the election, women and gender equity, and I think that will resonate strongly with her and her uh, role as ambassador and what she would want to, how she would want to engage with that. And I think also um, First Nations and uh, the voice to parliament and how that debate, that is a civil rights struggle for this country at this time. And civil rights has been a theme throughout the Kennedy uh, family, the presidency, the attorney general, um, Martin Luther King, uh, it's everything, everything, and that is unfolding here, and it is a really important issue. So I think that will be also a part of the fabric of um, of the ambassadorship too, and and that 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 all these issues are are have emerged. I think that is a really good thing. Hmm. I, I mean, we're, we've started talking about, it, so I'm going to continue down this front. I'd love to hear from both of you. I mean, Australia's recently had a, a changing government. And I wonder what your perspective is on um, how that might change or what that might mean for the relationship with Kennedy and her ability to speak to the president um, in her capacity as ambassador. We might start with you, Stephen. Uh, the other uh, night in Sydney, I was at a, a small dinner which the study centre organised with Mick Mulvaney, uh, President Trump's uh, acting chief of staff. And without divulging any of the, the discreet conversation, I said at the end of the dinner uh, that there may well be a change of government in Australia. And if it happened, there would be essentially no change in the uh, traditional relationship between Australia and the US. And I think that's true, though the new Australian government will be very much closer to the US government on issues like climate policy, for example, which will uh, give both governments an extra arrow in the, uh, in the diplomatic uh, quiver. The, the circumstances of, uh, of Ambassador-designate Kennedy's arrival are propitious, as, as Bruce was saying. We have a range of issues which will engage uh, Australians in a 
in a vigorous debate, but not a violent debate. Uh, it was President Obama, I think, who said to Prime Minister Gillard, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, Bruce, that Australians had the great advantage of having very effective gun control legislation, even though we have millions of legitimate shooters and millions of guns in circulation. We have effective gun control. We have universal health care and we have mandatory voting. And we've had mandatory voting since 1924. And hey, it works. So that you have this uh, extraordinary situation by the standards of, of most countries, most democratic countries, where the government is elected on, on the count on the Saturday evening, the new prime minister and senior ministers are sworn in at Yarralumla by the governor general the next day, and the new prime minister and foreign minister depart for Tokyo. Now, there was some criticism of that, but it was a very wise move to have Australia's allies and partners see firsthand the new prime minister and foreign minister at the quad meeting. Now, that was reflective of the fact that Australia has a very deep democratic history that predates Federation in 1901, including, of course, the secret ballot, which was originally uh, referred to as the Australian ballot, which uh, the United States adopted uh, over time. So I think that rich democratic history that does work, it's, it's flawed at times, there are fault lines and so on. But by and large, it works beautifully. The, the difference between Australian policymakers and the Australian Electoral Commission and some that we see in the United States is that Australia traditionally has moved to make voting easier for people, to be more inclusive, which is why we have the remote area polling stations in the Northern Territory and, and Western Queensland and, and WA and so on. This is designed to make it easier for people to vote and to have you know, universal registration and universal access to the franchise means that the extremes are marginalised. Uh, to a large extent, we saw that on Saturday night again. Yeah. The major parties are both under pressure. There's no doubt about that. But some 70% of Australians still voted either coalition or Labor. And with the flow of preferences, of course, most people had their votes registered. So I think, uh, as Bruce was saying, that's particularly important. We will have a vigorous debate and we will have some uh, horse trading in the Australian uh, Senate, but legislation will emerge uh, given when the government has achieved a, a narrow majority. The narrow majority, Victoria, is actually going to be important in terms of discipline for the new Labor government, restraining some of the more adventurous. Uh, I think we're in for some challenges for our democracy, but those challenges will be met. I'd uh, just like to add uh, that um, all these things are getting more resonance in the United States just because major news organizations like the Times and the Post now have bureaus here and they're reporting on... America's hearing much more than shark attacks off Perth about Australia, and uh, that's all to the good. And and uh, and the uh, E.J. Dion of the Washington Post and Brookings uh, had a book out uh, six weeks ago on it's called 100% Democracy about the, the voting system. So she, as a um, star of uh, in the firmament, uh, when she is back in the United States talking about the successes of democracy and how it can work will be a reinforcing uh, mechanism that will can show that there are better futures 
just when we think things are tough, there are better futures ahead if we choose to do them. Yeah, great. Um, I uh, Better futures ahead just sounds very um, optimistic. I think, um, and Bruce, you said this, that, um, you know, there's new bureaus, there's new bureaus in, uh, in America reporting on Australia more than just shark attacks. And I think one of the things that has been picked up in American media um, is, you know, Australia's uh, position with Chinese economic coercion and the increasing hostility in the Indo-Pacific, which will, of course, become a major priority for the ambassador, as it has been for the administration. And in her um, confirmation hearing, Senator Chris Murphy, who's a Democrat uh, in Washington, he pointed to Ch China's trade strikes in Australia, and he actually quoted a Global Times piece that described Australia as the chewing gum stuck on the sole of China's shoes. Um, and that was a point picked up in uh, Kennedy's confirmation hearing. And she, uh, like our um, democracy and our democratic process that has attracted a bit of acclaim by EJ Dion and other Americans who like our style of voting, um, she said this of um, Australia's position. She said, um, they've stood firm and I think they've managed to come together with a bipartisan foreign policy. And I think a greater and deeper part partnership with us on security and diplomatic areas, as well as across the board, will serve their country and our country well. Um, so considering that, I wonder, and perhaps this is our last question before we turn to the audience Q&A, is um, how will Kennedy's approach to China and some of those security concerns in the Indo-Pacific, what, what will her role as ambassador look like and how can that ex be expected to shape our relationship with America going forward? And Stephen, we'll start again with you. I think it's important to note that despite the deep divisions uh, within the American political class and within the American polity generally, there is very much a convergence in the Congress on uh, US approaches to China. That was reflected in Secretary Blinken's speech to Asia Society a day or two ago, where he said, look, there are going to be areas where we'll seek to cooperate. But there are going to be uh, areas where the differences are so great, we will be at, at variance and there will be intense uh, competition. So I think that view by and large prevails in the Congress, of course, of more recent times, a convergence in view in Congress on the uh, relations with, with Russia. So I think it's important the ambassadorial role, very much a two-way process here, Australian views going right back into state, Pentagon and White House and American views registering in Canberra. I think that will work well, given uh, Carolyn Kennedy's track record, which is first class, and given her capacities, which are uh, very much on uh, a display uh, right throughout her, uh, her career. So I think it's going to be very important as the new security relationships crystallise. I'm thinking of AUKUS here and the Quad. It's going to continue to be important in terms of uh, ANZUS and having the capacity to talk to the Secretary of Defence, the Secretary of State and the, the President uh, directly. There is absolutely no substitute for that in terms of uh, American politics and, uh, and government. And there's no question that the new ambassador will have the eye and ear of the Australian Prime Minister and, uh, and, and senior ministers. She starts well and I suspect will uh, uh, be very much a, an influence in, uh, in Canberra 
well beyond what we've seen of recent times. Um, I agree. I agree with that, and uh, she uh, it, it, she's seen uh, firsthand it, what the relationship was when she was ambassador to Japan, and is absolutely uh, engaged with where it is today and the the trajectory that it has been so far, and and uh, how it has devolved uh, as far as uh, China is concerned. But I also think she'll be a catalyst for everything as Secretary Blinken was talking about, plus August, plus the Quad in terms of, look, we're playing a game of catch up here as far as the Asia Pacific uh, is concerned and the effectiveness and power of uh, these two great allies, the United States and Australia. And I think she will, um, uh, her involvement will help ensure that um, those tasks are undertaken aggressively and astutely. So again, I just see tremendous additive value uh, in her uh, role as ambassador and the reach that she can have to make help make good things happen. And Bruce, I might just extend this question one more time to you, because I mean, we've talked a bit about AUKUS and areas where perhaps there's more bipartisan cooperation on the Hill, but what about areas where there's a little bit more uh, contention, things like trade policy and climate change? How do you expect her to navigate those issues um, that cause a little bit more friction in America? Well, I think she'll explain where, she'll explain where the United States is and where this administration is and, and what the priorities are. But she's also gives, given now her diplomatic experience, she brings even more political skills to um, mediating those issues. So I, I just see all I, I just see a whole bunch of upside and, uh, and, and dialogue conducted for constructive purposes. I mean, the point is, how much can you get done? And, and you can get a, a lot done by um, friendship than by confrontation. And I think that's absolutely the way she's going to uh, comport herself. And the embassy itself, it's done it for years under several ambassadors, under several governments, labor and liberal, and uh, dealing with all those personalities. And so I think this will just be additive to that. Victoria, we're talking about the impact of the ambassador in Canberra. And uh, I think that's entirely appropriate. Could I just make an observation Please. about the impact of ambassador designate Kennedy in Washington, and it was reflected in a comment that Chairman uh, Bob Menendez of, uh, of New Jersey said during the hearing for the ambassadorial confirmation, where he was talking about the importance of the relationship with Australia. And I think that's an interesting signpost for the future in terms of Congress and the administration, and more broadly, uh, Americans generally, about Australia registering. Uh, as a significant ally in a uh, in a part of the world that's um, become increasingly competitive. Mm, absolutely, and I think that's been punctuated by recent decisions. One of which we've talked about a little bit being AUKUS. And I might turn to an audience question now. This is from Dan Steiner, who's from ANU, and he asks, "What public deliverables from AUKUS do you foresee in the next few years?" And Stephen, I might actually start with you for that one. Sorry, I missed the first part of the. Uh, what public deliverables from AUKUS do you foresee in the future, in the next few years? I think, in the immediate sense, uh, in terms of uh, technologies, there'll be increasing close cooperation with the US and the UK, uh, particularly in the uh, area of AI, and more broadly in the area of uh, of capability and the release by the US and the UK of, uh, of high-tech uh, capability to Australians and a close cooperation 
between Australian uh, companies and their American and British counterparts. I think the submarines have tended to occupy too much time. It's a little bit like the Marines in Darwin occupying uh, the commentary uh, about the extension of ANZUS when uh, relations with the US Navy and the US Air Force have been of particular uh, importance uh, in these times too. By the way, I expect we will see more of uh, joint training exercises with the US and uh, other uh, partners. But for AUKUS, I think the focus will be on the technology uh, upon hardware and software, and that's likely to begin bearing fruit over the next uh, a year or so. Uh, Bruce, would you like to add anything to that? Or? Everything as Stephen said, and there's a political dimension to this, of course. And uh, the fact is, AUKUS is, is tremendously bipartisan in Washington. That's to the good. She can deepen it. And she, we talk of her as a democratic, you know, her, her heritage is democratic. But um, she is fully bipartisan in her own right. The Kennedy Awards, the Profile and Courage Awards have gone to Mitt Romney, um, uh, George H.W. Bush, Liz Cheney. And so she is a celebrant of um, uh, the best part of American democracy, which is when Democrats and Republicans can work together. And so uh, you have a solid base now with AUKUS. It can only grow. Brilliant. Uh, and that's a good segue to our next question. And apologies for any mispronunciation of the name on this, but this comes from um, Philip Chitawicki from the Space Industry Association of Australia. And he asks, what are your thoughts on Kennedy's potential leadership to build out deeper links between Australia and the US in terms of space cooperation? Um, and he adds, hopefully fast tracking matters on low hanging fruit like technology safeguard agreement that can be caught up uh, by the bureaucratic process. So I suppose, yeah, is there any potential for space cooperation perhaps uh, as part of August as part of developing these advanced capabilities? What kind of role could Ambassador Kennedy play there? And starting again with uh, you, Stephen. Enormous potential uh, here through the Australian Space uh, Agency and cooperation with American institutions uh, such as NASA, uh, everything here to be considered from Australian geography to US and Australian uh, uh, technologies. And I think, again, the capacity of the new ambassador to speak directly uh, uh, to people in America's uh, institutions, in Australia's institutions, is, is really quite extraordinary. We shouldn't uh, lose sight of the fact that uh, at Cape Canaveral, the launch site is named after her late father. So again, you have these uh, these links. I, I just make one more comment. We, we're talking about the Profiles in Courage Awards, and we should. But if we look at the original uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book by the young uh, Jack Kennedy, he, he had a, a particular line in it which still resonates, and it may have been written by Theodore Sorensen, but it was Jack Kennedy's name on the book. And there's no question that he had an active part in its, uh, in its completion and publication. And he was talking about Winston Churchill, talking about democracy. And he made the observation that Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it off to war. So that Kennedy's recognized in a democracy, the importance of, of language, the significance of words. And that of course is, is reflected not only in Jack Kennedy's speeches, but in Bobby's as well, and in Teddy's. I mean, quite extraordinary. So 
an appreciation of the democratic uh, uh, culture is, is really significant in the, uh, in the Kennedy family. So to come back to the question on space, I think there is enormous potential there. There are skills in both countries. There are determinations in both countries and Australia has a peculiar geography that has served the Alliance well. I'm thinking of Pine Gap and other locations, for example. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be cooperating more closely on space technologies. Mm. Um, actually, Bruce, I might pivot and ask a, a separate question for you. So, I mean, and Stephen put this really beautifully, saying that there's, you know, the Kennedy's show the importance of language and the significance of words. And this kind of relates to one of the questions from um, the audience, from Anthony Hamet, who asks, um, Ambassador Kennedy has great experience with China from her time in Japan. How will that attend? Uh, impact our attempts to reopen communication if we have such uh, attempts uh, with China? How might that, that kind of re-communication occur with Kennedy? I think, well, it, I mean, her remit is here. So I, I don't see any, any, any outreach from here as far as the embassy is concerned with China. If, there, if things develop and there are ways in which doing, where she becomes engaged, that's fine. And, uh, and will work out. But I, I think it really is an understanding from her father uh, that uh, peace is through strength and the strength of the relationship and then how it comports itself and how it is projected becomes really important. But when you see, you know, when you see opportunities, you take them. And what you're going to have is another great mind at the table with the State Department and with the National Security Council and with the president's uh, other staff so that when issues come up and they decide, can we do things to do it? I mean, the, the White House is considering now whether there should be a reduction in tariffs uh, imposed by Trump on China in part to deal with inflationary pressures. Well, maybe there's something, if that does occur, that may provide an opening of other opportunities uh, within the ambit of a very challenging relationship and we don't want to cede anything unilaterally without any positive return as far as China's posture in the region. But, but I think there, she has um, a deep mind, a deep and creative mind, and it, it'll be applied to this. So again, there can be many potential dividends from that, and she will have that seat at the table. Hmm. And um, Stephen, I might just extend that question to you. I mean, we have another audience question asking, you know, what are some active ways that we can deal or live with China? Um, I mean, Bruce has provided one for Ambassador Kennedy, but any other suggestions about how that might play out? Well, the significance of the ambassadorial role there is to, to make uh, certain as far as possible that Australia and the US move in lockstep in terms of the, the China relationship. The support from allies and partners during the period, continuing period of Chinese economic coercion has been really significant. It's interesting, actually, Victoria, the $20 billion of, uh, of tariffs on China, uh, imposed by China and Australian products really went nowhere in terms of, as a commodities uh, country, Australia actually exported about $25 billion of those products to other countries, to other customers, during the period of the, uh, uh, of the Chinese aggression. So we can deal with that, but it's important that we deal with these issues with the US, with other uh, friends and, uh, and partners, and the ambassadorial role is critical there. 
It's interesting to remember, Victoria, I'm old, I'm old enough to remember Richard Nixon, and he's worth remembering, God bless him. The breakthrough <laughs> between the People's Republic and the American Republic in the 70s in the Nixon administration began with table tennis, of a signal being sent by Beijing supposedly on table tennis. And then Dr. Kissinger made the secret visit to Beijing, just as uh, uh, Mr. Whitlam, the Labor leader of the, the time, Gough Whitlam, made an open visit to meet Zhou Enlai and, and Mao and talked about Australia recognising China. But there will be uh, interesting moves that come off the back, perhaps, of the Biden administration uh, lessening the impact of tariffs at the moment. And, and I think a sensible uh, approach would be to do that. You're not signalling overall that you're changing course. You're just being discreet in the pursuit of that course. So I think remaining alert to a shift in, uh, in Beijing is important. But for Australia, overwhelmingly, the relationship with China has that umbrella of the relationship overall with the US. Excellent. Um, okay, I think we're, we're quickly running out of time. Um, so I might uh, ask you both this final question. Um, we've talked about a range of issues, um, both political uh, and about, uh, uh, sorry, we've talked about uh, her aptitude for the role and I think that's very exciting for her coming forward and clearly she's well adept to deal with many of the political issues that we've been talking about. And I wonder as my final question, if you could pass on any advice uh, about what Ambassador Kennedy's top priority should be or how she should go about a certain issue, uh, what would that issue be and what advice would you give and I'll start with Bruce. I think just um, meeting, there's all kinds of official responsibilities and established groups and so forth, but I think uh, going, uh, stepping out a bit more to just engage with as many people uh, as possible across the country. And again, given these issues of gender equity and First Nation, uh, reckoning with First Nations, I think that provides other opportunities. There is one other thing I want to, uh, to mention, and that is uh, it is the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and uh, the president's role in celebrating culture. And this country has such vigorous arts and vigorous culture. And uh, for, on, in, in every aspect, I think she will enjoy it, celebrate it, and that will also deepen the alliance between the two countries. And Stephen, same question to you. Well, very briefly, I agree with Bruce. Canberra is a marvelous place, but like Washington DC, it's an artificial creation. <laughs> and it's very important, and noting the most successful American ambassadors over a long period of time, to get out and about because the view that you'll get from Darwin or Townsville or Hobart or Esperance is going to be different from time to time, the view you get Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra. Now, I suspect the ambassador designate understands that perfectly. She travelled widely uh, in Japan. She will travel widely in Australia, and that's the only advice, immodestly, I would offer. I, I also think, again, on her bipartisanship, I think she'll enjoy republicanism in Australia very thoroughly. Yes. <laughs>
All right, and with that, I might uh, draw this webinar to a close. And thank you so much uh, to you both for joining us today and for um, imparting your wisdom and your um, excitement, especially about um, Ambassador Kennedy's arrival. Uh, and thank you to our audience for joining us today and uh, for asking some really great and enriching questions. And of course, as always, thank you to the exceptional United States Study Centre team and especially Janine Pinto who make these webinars possible. If you're like me, you're likely more excited about Kennedy's arrival than you were before this meeting. Um, and I'm going to take that excitement throughout my whole day, I imagine. Um, but before you go, I just want to bring uh, your attention to our next scheduled United States Studies Centre webinar, uh, which should be coming up on your screens here. So it's on Thursday, the 7th of July from 10 o'clock Australian Eastern Standard Time. And it's a documentary history of the United States with Alexander Hefner. Uh, Hefner is the co-author and host of The Open Mind on PBS. And he will be discussing the updated version of his book where he examines a range of primary sources to find the unvarnished facts about the United States history. So I'm sure that will make for particularly interesting discussion. Uh, but for now, thank you for attending our webinar this morning and we will see you next time for more analysis of America and insight for Australia at the United States Study Centre. Thank you. Thank you.